0: Sign up at swanprivate.com today, mention breed Love to your advisor, and get $100 in free Bitcoin when you make your first buy. Stefan Kinsella, welcome back to the What Is Money show.
1: Thank you. Glad to be here.
0: Glad to have you again. We're going to continue going through Hoppe's excellent book, A Theory of Socialism and Capitalism. And I'll get us rolling here, uh, reading an excerpt on page 19 in the PDF version of this book. Hoppe writes, to develop the concept of property, it is necessary for goods to be scarce, so that conflicts over the use of these goods can possibly arise. It is the function of property rights to avoid such possible clashes over the use of scarce resources by assigning rights of exclusive ownership. Property is thus a normative concept, a concept designed to make a conflict free interaction possible by stipulating mutually binding rules of conduct, norms, regarding scarce resources. So, you know, this is one of those concepts that I visit a lot on this show and have a really hard time um, because people have these preconceived notions of property, right? That property is just the asset. But it's really this, as as Hapi is describing here, this normative way of dealing with the reality of scarcity right there's there are limited things in the world and there are more wants than there are for certain things those things are scarce we have to resolve conflict over those scarce resources either by contract or you know the other approach is like actual conflict physical conflict right something something more coercive
1: well, notice his first sentence is to develop the concept of property. There, there need to be scarce goods. So what yeah. he's saying there, and the Randians hate when we we talk like this because they 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 think we're focusing on the negative or something like that. Or mm-hmm. it's like it's like the economic or political equi- equivalent of saying that rights are based upon the ability to feel pain or something. Which, um, it, but it's not like that. What what Hans is saying is that we have to recognize why property rules emerge. … they emerge because we are actors, mm. and we are actors that – which means to act means to use scarce resources or means to achieve ends. Uh, and when we achieve ends, we're trying to change the future from something that we think it will be to something that we prefer it to be, which means that the world is not perfect. In other words, it means we're unsatisfied or dissatisfied um, or uneasy as Mises calls it. And this all implies that we live in a world of scarcity… Okay, We live in a world where all of our means – all of our wants can't be satisfied just at whim. We have to do something to try to get it, and then they're not always possible to be solved because there's limited resources, and there's competition for these resources with other people. There's competition for them, which means the possibility of a clash or a conflict because the resources are scarce, which means they have a property which is uh, they can only be used by one person at a time. So if someone sees a coconut… Someone else sees the coconut. They both want the coconut. They can't both have it at the same time. Only one can consume the coconut. Um, So that means there's a possibility of conflict. So it's the possibility of conflict that gives rise to the the problem of conflict, which we need to try to solve somehow. You could try to solve it by, I don't know, becoming immortal and and omnipotent and God… I guess, but that's not really feasible. So the other way we try to solve it is we recognize that we live in society among a bunch of similarly placed actors or agents, human beings that have similar capacities, uh, similar desires, similar wants. They all need to use scarce resources, but we tend to prefer um, to use these things without violently battling each other for them all the time because that gets us nowhere. It's it's a lose lose game. Right. Um, because it, it costs resources and effort to just fight with each other, and you still don't increase the sum total of resources. So we would prefer to have cooperative use of these resources, which implies the need to, to have a set of rules that assign owners to the to every given resource. There needs to be a rule that says who is the actor that has the better claim to it. So that's what property rights are, and we say norms because a norm is, um, is a normative rule that you can consult to tell you how you should act in a given situation. or who should win. Um, So that's what property rights are. Property rights are rules that emerge in society out of the desire for people to be able to use resources peacefully and cooperatively and without conflict. So these rules assign owners, and so then the question is what are the contents of the particular rules, and that's where libertarianism comes in and the Lockean natural rights… Perspective, … and that's where it differs from all other competing theories, which we would all call variations of a type of socialism, whether it's autocratic or democratic or authoritarian or communist or, or democrat socialist or whatever. Um, uh, all those rules differ in how they specify who has the right to control a resource. But anyway, so the point is once you think of – once you understand that the purpose of property rights is – to help us solve the problem of the possibility of conflict, which emerges because of the nature of scarcity in the real world, um, then you understand that property rules are just those rules, and so then you start to see when people refer to like a you know a piece of land or or a car as a pro- as your property, it's a slight misuse of the word, or at least it can lead to confusion because technically speaking, if we want to be precise, the word property is the relationship between human beings with respect to these scarce resources. So my property right in a car basically means I have a connection to that car that is distinct and superior to everyone else's that other people can see and respect if they want to avoid conflict.
0: Yeah, brilliantly said. Um, you know one one thing that really jumps out for me there is just the nature of the two different approaches for resolving conflicts over scarce resources you know as you said we can have some normative arrangement like property or you can just have the the fighting right the fighting over the stuff itself and those two different modes of relating to scarce resources have significant impact on how much we're able to conquer scarcity right to increase productivity and capital accumulation and all these things the fighting would be a zero-sum game, right? It's not creating any more pie. The pie is not getting bigger. Whereas if you have private property-enabled free trade, we can actually grow the pie. And so that's kind of the magic of capitalism in a way. Yeah,
1: not only that, I think the fighting is a negative-sum game because it, yes. you have to expend resources to engage in battle. Even if you win the battle – um, you're the winner. You, you had to expend resources to, to, to get there. Um, yeah, it's sort of a – it goes along economically with the idea that uh, capitalism and society progresses um, by having what we call lower time preference, which corresponds to uh, a longer time horizon, which corresponds to longer-term projects. Okay, And so in capitalism, you can have more profit in a sense or more output, more productivity… If you have a longer time horizon, so you can, you know, you plant a crop and you, if you, you know, if it's trees or something, you can't use it for a few years. You have to wait um, as opposed to going into the woods and just chopping the first tree down that you see. And if you keep doing that, soon you'll have no trees left. Um, So, or you might can plant something that would last, that would, you could reap in a month. But if you could plant, if you could start a factory, then you don't see the profits for 20 years. That's a longer time horizon. But the only way to engage in these long-term projects is to have stability of property rights, because you're not going to invest your resources in something that can be taken away in a month or a year or ten years. Um, so, security of property rights—that is a normative approach to solving conflict—permits um, us to engage in longer-term planning, and that produ- produces more prosperity. So, this is why, if you have, if you think of competition among societies on the world, societies that happen to Set, … Uh, settle upon more, more Lockean-type private property rules are going to be more prosperous than other areas or regions which don't because they're going to be living hand-to-mouth. I mean think of Africa versus Europe. You know, Africa is poor, and Europe is, is prosperous, and the West is prosperous. And that's primarily because of the differences in the way property rights are um, institutionally respected, so you can engage in longer-term projects. Uh, If if you can't count on the future, that is, if you live in a might-makes-right society, which basically means there's no right. There's only might. right? Um, So the normative view means that we have have a a built-in society-wide ethos where people tend to respect these norms even though they're not self-enforcing. we voluntarily abide by them. Now, the few people that don't are regarded as outlaws or criminals and are dealt with um, as, as what Hoppe calls mere technical obstacles um, or mere technical problems. But um, that's basically the way you look at it.
0: Yeah, it seems to be, um, you know, the law of sowing and reaping comes to mind that this just lets us engage in more sowing and therefore more future reaping and you know the west has really proven that economic law this the economic success of the west i think has proven that property works right strong property rights allow the society to become more wealthy than it could without them
1: and it, yeah and i think that i think that a priori reasoning demonstrates that too and we have to be a little bit careful we have to think of the west as an illustration of that a priori reasoning that right. kind of deductive reasoning because we have to be careful not to engage in the causation and correlation fallacy, which is what some people do with intellectual property. So they'll say that, that – um, well, the West has been prosperous, and say America has been very prosperous since 1800 roughly, um, and we had patent laws and, and copyright laws since then. So therefore, they're the cause of our prosperity, um, so we have to isolate these things. I think we can make a good case that our strong property rights have been a cause… Or at least a necessary component of our prosperity, but there are other things we've had continuously for the the life of the country. Uh, we've had uh, we've had uh, inflation. We've had you know central inflation of the money. We've had tariffs. We've had wars. We've had taxation. We had slavery for a long time. Um, we had uh, discriminatory laws. We we've had intellectual property. We've had regulations. All those things also accompanied our growth, but they're not the cause of our growth. I would say that our growth happened despite these things and would have been greater without those things.
0: That's a great point. So I should say that the West is illustrious of Yeah, it Yeah, it, uh,
1: it illustrates a, ra- a rational insight.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, not necessarily a proof, but a good illustration. That's a, a yep. good,
1: good yep.
0: qualification there. And so this normative concept of property, I think it really begins it, – or it's – the human being relationship with nature in a lot of ways, right? It's like how how much, rather than how much, when we go into the world and make productive use of these scarce resources, we establish this relationship called property. And it begins really with our own biology, right? And that's where, where Hoppe goes next, is into this kind of Lockean view as property as an extension of individual self-ownership. Um, and I'll, I'll read just a quick excerpt on that. Hoppe writes, as a matter of fact, even if we were to assume that we lived in the Garden of Eden, where there was a superabundance of everything needed, not only to sustain one's, one's life, but to indulge in every possible comfort by simply stretching out one's hand, the concept of property would necessarily have to evolve. For even under these quote unquote ideal circumstances, every person's physical body would still be a scarce resource and thus the need for the establishment of property rules, i.e. rules regarding people's bodies, would exist. One is not used to thinking of one's own body in terms of a scarce good, but in imagining the most ideal situation one could ever hope for, the Garden of Eden, it becomes possible to realize that one's body is indeed the prototype of a scarce good, for the use of which property rights, i.e. rights of exclusive ownership, somehow have to be established in order to avoid clashes. Now, this is one of those areas that I, it just seems so abundantly obvious to me, the, the reality of individual self-ownership. But when I've tried to use that as a justification for property, or as like the foundational, um, the foundation of property as a normative concept. I've had a lot of people argue with me. They're like, "No, you're right. not. You're not individually self-owned, right? You're this right. deposit of other influences and personalities." And so, how do you how do you deal with that?
1: Is it do you take the Lockean view, um, or well, I take the Hoppian view, which is which is uh, um based upon some of Locke's insights. Um, this is an example of what Hoppe is such a precise, clear, powerful writer. <laughs> but in this one paragraph, there's a lot of things compressed and a lot of assumptions. Um, um so this this first of all this paragraph illustrates sort of the 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 problem or the or the uh, the problematic nature of some of these hypotheticals. Like for example, in economics, I think Rothbard and Mises use this idea of the evenly rotating economy. Now that is actually an impossible situation, but they're trying to mentally isolate. Aspects of reality to help us focus on certain phenomena, right? Like interest or time preference or uncertainty or the or the the role of money. Like you wouldn't need money in an evenly rotating economy because you would know everything. So that kind of, right. although the, the the examples always break down if you take them seriously because they're they're literally impossible. So it's just like if you have a math equation and you you accidentally introduce a zero in the denominator. Like there's x minus y, and they happen to be the same as a zero, you can get any result possible. And you you might you might get weird results because you don't realize you made that mistake. And the same thing is true. Um, uh, if with these examples. Now, the same thing is true here. Hoppa takes it halfway. So he says, Imagine the Garden of Eden where there's superabundance of external resources. Now, superabundance basically means We're basically like little mini gods or something. But he he says we still have physical bodies. So he's imagining we still have physical bodies. Because if you took the example all the way to this ghostly realm of like we're angels or spirits, like ghosts that kind of flow through each other, we can't so we don't have any needs. We're we're actually each omnipotent. We have we have all the needs and wants fulfilled, and we literally can't interfere with each other because we're like ghostly bodies, then we're not even talking about the real universe. So he keeps one aspect of it, he keeps the fact that we have bodies. To, to show that right. even if you ignore the problem of scarcity in the world of, of external resources and needs, if if we still ad- identify ourselves as having human bodies, you can still have fights over that, and you would still need property rules there. So what he's trying to do is trying to show that, number one, your body is a type of property or a resource that you need property rights for, and number one is the prototype because you you really can't. Imagine away the physical physicality of your body and still have a realistic example. You could imagine away everything else but not your body. So this is why, number one, you have to have property rights in your body, which some people call self-ownership, and you… And this is the prototype, which means that the same reason that you need property rights in your body is why when you relax these constraints and say, okay, but the real world does have scarce resources out there that we need to use, then the, then you also need property rules in those things too. So first we establish self-ownership, and then we establish ownership of the self-owning agents in external resources. So in that loose way of putting it or that general way of putting it, there's a parallel to what Locke says. Locke says we're self-owners. And therefore, we can own things that we appropriate. His argument is a little bit flawed. And let me say one other thing. One criticism some libertarians make of the self-ownership idea. I don't know which one you're referring to that you've heard, but one criticism is that they're leery of a type of dualism or mysticism that they believe is inherent in the idea of self-ownership. Like they think that if you if you're a self-owner, then yourself must be something different than your body, like a soul or a spirit. Like, so they're imagining this metaphysical dualism. So they think that self ownership implies a religious perspective, but it doesn't at all. As Roderick Long points out, as I pointed out, um, the the precise way to put it is body ownership, as Hoppe emphasizes here. So your body is a scarce resource. Now, legally and juristically uh, we and economically, we have a concept of the person or the agent or the actor we call, like, you are you. … but you have a body, which means that um, your body is one concept referring to your corporeal body, but you is your personality. Now, uh, atheists think that, that this is buying into some religious mysticism to, to point this out, but it's not. It's simply a conceptual distinction. It's like saying that conceptually there's a distinction between your mind and your bo- and your brain it doesn't mean there's no connection it doesn't mean that there's a spiritual mind it just means that the concept of mind is different than the brain and that's easy to see because you know if there's a dead person on the ground they that body has a brain but it doesn't have a mind anymore right so these are just different concepts you can change your mind but you can't change your brain you know what i mean your brain has a weight but your mind doesn't have a weight for example they're just simply different concepts um and they're related um and Likewise, your personality, what some people call your soul, but what we don't have to. We can just say your person, your agency, uh, your identity as a person or as an actor is distinct from your body, although they're definitely related because you can't be an actor without a body because your body is how you interact with the world. Um, so these are just different concepts. Um, so one objection to self-ownership is that it's religious, that Leland Yeager made this objection to me, and I'm an atheist too, so he, he doesn't know what he's talking about. I mean… When I say self-ownership, I simply mean body ownership, and all I mean by that is you have a scarce resource in your body, and someone has a better claim to it than someone else, and either that's me or it's someone else. So the choice is really between lawlessness and chaos and 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 the, the war of all against all or slavery or self-ownership, and libertarians simply prefer… Self-ownership. That means I am the one that has the right to decide who gets to use my body. If you have a a woman, for example, Sharon, and she has a body, then the question arises, who gets to decide who can have sex with that body? And our answer as libertarians is Sharon. We don't have to decide metaphysical questions about or religious questions about whether Sharon is a soul or not. It doesn't matter. We can identify her as a person and Sharon is the person in control of her body and she's the one who has the right to decide who can have sex with it right any other answer is either slavery or lawlessness
0: no brilliantly brilliantly put um yeah the the imaginary constructions you know they're very useful but it seems to be something that critics of libertarianism try to zero in on and attack right that we're living in some type of theoretical world versus as you said, the evenly rotating economy could never exist. It's a world of essentially no uncertainty, right? So the need for money Correct. goes away. You can always match your your inflows and outflows, so you never need right. liquidity, basically right. And um the so then with property, it's interesting because you get this, okay, so there's this very fundamental pre-legalistic property, right? which is just your the relationship of your agency to your body. And then, essentially, the property that relationships we establish in the world with scarce resources are almost like an extension of that, right? You're just extending your self ownership into nature, like you know, justly appropriating or trading with others to acquire.
1: And yeah, this is why I think the word property tended to get the uh, the connotations that it has now, where people use the word property to refer to the thing that you have a property right in, wherein if you want to be precise. In a legalistic or juristic sense, um, if there's a scarce resource out there, let's call it X. You know, um, um, a microphone. <laughs> I'm looking at a microphone now, so there's a microphone here, right? Okay, so here's a microphone, and um, people say I, I own that. So, Can Stefan Cancela owns this microphone, so they say it's my property. Well, the technically correct way to say it is I have a property right in the microphone. So, the microphone is a scarce resource. In which, which I own or have a property right in. But because we human beings have naked bodies, when we're born into the world and we are literally, it's impossible to act without interfering, uh, interfacing with the world because we're not like floating in our space, like, you know, the right. Hulk or something, <laughs> just floating for years. We, we, we're touching the ground, we're t- breathing the air, we have electromagnetic radiation coming off of us and gravitational waves, and, you know, we're all connected. I, In fact, that's what I think it means – what I think – the word exist, I think to exist means to have an effect on other things. So not to be mystical, but everything in the in the universe is connected to everything else. Right. So when people posit these theories about what if there's a parallel universe or what if there's um, another realm that doesn't affect us, well, then I think it literally does not exist because if it can't affect you, then it doesn't exist because that's what it means to exist. Um, but um, in any case… When we act, we always act in accordance with the laws of cause and effect because we're trying to intervene in the course of affairs to causally manipulate things to change the course of events. And we use our bodies by directly controlling it, like our hands and our feet and our mouths and our heads. Um, and we grapple with things that matter in the universe to get these things done. You know, we stand on a certain ground, we pick up a piece of wood, we pick up a fruit and eat it. You know, we do things like this. Um, so, this use of these things is unavoidably part of what action is. So over time, we accumulate what you can call tools or means, like like clothing or a spear. And they become extensions of ourselves because we have to that's how we extend our influence into the world. So it becomes a property of ourselves, like as part of our characteristic or part of our feature. Like like I, I identify that guy as, you know, for for the guy with the hat with the horns on it. Like so that hat is an external resource that's part of his identity or nature or features or characteristics or part of his properties. So over time, we 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 slip from saying I have a propriety in that resource or a property right in that resource. By the way, proprietor is an owner, right? So to have a proprietary interest means you have a better claim to something than someone else. So you see, it's always a relational thing about who owns it. Now you did say something earlier that's slightly, uh, no, uh, uh, n- not to criticize you, but slightly imprecise. Like it's not merely acting in the world um, and using things that gives rise to property, because that's only in society. So Crusoe alone on his island, um, only if you, this is only true if you think of the word property in the two senses that some economists do, property in the sense of um, um, an actual fact or ability to control. And property in the sense of property rights. Now, Mises distinguishes this in and so in socialism and in some other writings by saying that there's sociological ownership. I think he calls it sociological ownership and catalactic or economic ownership. Um, but and uh, in, in another later writing, he calls sociological ownership. He calls uh, I think he calls it juristic. No, I th- I, I'm sorry, I'm getting confused. In an earlier writing, he distinguished sociological. versus juristic ownership. That is legal. That's the right to own something versus possession of it, which he called sociological. And in in later works, he used the word catalactic, which means economic, instead of sociology because I think he realized – I think maybe he wanted to use the word sociology for economics, but it was already taken, so uh, (laughs) something like that. But the point is, if we were going to be precise, we should say possession or the fact of dominion or control as the factual matter…  … And ownership should be reserved to the juristic or the normative concept. So Crusoe on his island has factual control of things. He can, you know, make a fishing net. He can eat the coconuts and things like that. Uh, but he doesn't own them in the juristic sense because there's no other people around that he could have a conflict with. We don't need a norm. I mean, who's the norm going to apply to? That's not to say that he doesn't have certain morals or rules he follows himself to try to better his own life. Um, you, you, you know, you could argue that. Um, some libertarians get so afraid of exporting their 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 strict view that not everything that's immoral should be illegal. Okay, which I agree with, that they're afraid to say anything is immoral uh, that's not illegal, like objectively. Which means that if Crusoe is alone on an island, there is nothing. There's no illegality. There's no crime. So there could be nothing that's immoral. Now that's not the Ayn Rand view. It's not my view. I think. It is immoral to be too lazy and to let your you know let your life decay on this island uh, because it's bad for your life as a human being. But that's my own personal ethical view. But saying something is immoral doesn't mean that it's illegal, right? So it's okay to say that. But anyway, the point is property emerges w- with a combination of the fact of scarcity when people are in society, which is pretty much always the case. So that's why property rights emerged,
0: yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And then, You know, even to exist at all, right? We exist within space, within time. And to exist within time is the same thing as saying you're finite, right? There's nothing, or there's no one at least. That's mm. in time. That's not...
1: Wait, wait. Unpack that because I. I I'm
0: well, just I'm just scarcity. thinking that time itself sort of implies scarcity, and this segues into one of his next quotes: is um, you know, our bodies and our lifetimes are scarce, right? There's, or they're they're inherently finite. I, I guess maybe it's an assumption or presumption to say they're scarce because that would assume people
1: wanted. Right. More I think lifetime. I think it's actually. I think there's some commonality between the fact that we have finite a finite – a limited amount of time on the earth. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some analogy to that in scarcity, but I don't think it's really the same thing. This is why in some of my writing I've tried to like replace the concept of scarcity uh, with what I call conflictability. Now, the reason is because uh, – which is almost the same as the economic concept of rival- rivalrousness. The reason is because the word scarcity can, is ambiguous. And… It, which is implied by Hoppe's use of the word superabundance. Superabundance is distinct from abundance. Abundance means there's a like there's a lot of bananas out there. There's so many bananas that they're a penny a piece, let's say. Right. But a superabundance means there's so many that there's it's like, like there's literally it's it, it's impossible to take it. Again, it's an impossible construct to imagine. Hmm. But that actually is is the case for ideas and information. I, information is superabundant because you can't diminish the supply of someone's. Uh, 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 possession of, of of knowledge by you having a duplicate copy of it so that is a, an example of superabundance but um um but but i don't I mean my, here's my here's my way of looking at has written on this by the way in other places on something called protophysics you know the idea that we can use uh, a priori and deductive reasoning to talk about Basic concepts of even physics that are the foundation of physics, not to be proved by experiments. Okay, and so I would say that it's like a priori true that we have to conceive of ourselves as operating in three-dimensional space. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, and when physicists and uh, space cadets, as Rothbard might call them, and and mathematicians say, "Oh, time is the other dimension," and there's uh, there's like eleven other dimensions curled up into I think it's all nonsense in a physicalist sense. I don't think time is a dimension. Time is a concept that we have that has arisen because we observe what we observe. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Observing implies that things change. Things change. So time is just the concept that comes along with our recognition of the fact that things change. In fact, action implies this because action means we're in a present moment, and we see something is coming. That means the current state of affairs is going to change. And so change happens, and it 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 it, 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 it a priori happens because of whatever the laws of cause causality are in the universe. Uh, we don't know what they are exactly. We have some guess, and we develop that over time with the scientific method and with a experience and observation, right? But the point is, um, so time is just the fact of things changing. So, but we have good reason, to, as a factual, con, uh, contingent, empirical matter, to believe that. Uh, our life, our lifespan is finite. right? You can say it's scarce because, oh, there's a certain number of minutes, and you need time to do things, so you have a certain bucket of minutes in your life to get things done. So that's scarce, and that affects how you plan and how you live your life. That's all true, but it's not scarcity in the sense of conflictability because you can't have a conflict over time. Now, people overuse metaphors, and they'll say something like, well, if you enslave someone… Or if you tax them, you're stealing their time. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's not literally true. You're not literally stealing their time uh, because that's just a metaphor, right? It's just a way to express the outrage and the consequences of aggression in certain cases. Uh, like if you enslave someone for 10 years, then there's 10 years that they 10 years they had to spend in prison instead of getting something productive done with their life. But it doesn't mean you stole their time. In in the sense of like, there's a substance that you took it from them, and now you have it. You can spend it, you know. Uh, so I think we need to be careful with these terms. So, anyway, we we'll go ahead.
0: So let let me double click on that. Actually, when when someone uh, is the victim of taxation or inflation, let's say, or just keep it in the realm of taxation, I guess. Their … the fruits of their labor are being stolen. right? Their, their property rights are being violated. So would you say that it is proper to say the fruits of their labor are being stolen but not their labor is being stolen?
1: Well, so I would say it's a metaphor upon metaphor. So the fruits yeah. of your labor is a metaphorical way to describe – so economically, this fruits of your labor idea is the idea that if you work hard and to transform a resource that you have a a claim over like ownership of then if you have luck and you have good planning and then you might make a profit right so you know if you plant a field you plant a garden and you reap then you you uh you, you get the uh, the the crops a year later and it works out as you planned then your your labor was was used by you to to produce a profit, right? So, and you know, if it's a tree or, or a plant that produces fruits, we call that fruits. I mean, so like even the law, there's something called civil fruits. So, like if you if you loan someone money and you get interest, we call that civil fruits. Or if the cow, if you own a cow and it has a calf, we call that a fruit. So it's just the result of your actions. Now this leads to the concept. If you're not careful, this can lead to the Marxian. Labor concept that if you if you do any effort at all, you're entitled to a profit. Right. Like, of course, you're not. That is the idea behind intellectual property. Like, well, I, I I worked on this idea, I should get a profit. I mean, just like in physics, work is moving a, f- a force through a distance. Like, if you push on a wall, you, exp- you expend effort, but you don't get anything done. You're not you're not work. You're not producing any work. Right. right. You have to actually accomplish something. And the same thing in the, in the market. You know, if you, you can work hard on an idea, and your business could go bankrupt. You don't make any profit. So. Working hard doesn't guarantee it. It's just that sometimes there is a fruit of your labor, right? That's why you labor trying to make a profit. So I would say uh, when when people say like uh, inflation is theft, it's it's not literally theft, but it's not literally theft because um, uh, taxation is theft because the government coerces you into turning over some of your own resources. Like the government mm-hmm. says, you just got ten pieces of silver. … for that trade, you must give us one of those, mm-hmm. or we're going to put you in prison. So mm-hmm. they that's a way of extorting or coercing you to hand over one of your pieces of silver, which you own. So that's theft, Okay, theft by coercion. There can also be theft by stealth, theft by other – but it's a type of theft. Now, inflation is similar because when the government prints money, they reduce the purchasing power of your existing money. But… The reason it's analogous is because there is still an act of coercion or aggression in the government monopolizing the monetary system in the first place. Right. So they wouldn't be able to do this unless they had monopolized the money. And that required coercion as well. Like they had to pass a law saying uh the dollar is legal tender and it's illegal to own gold and uh or gold is taxed, but our our legal tender is not taxed, so they do these things that are all rights violations. And the way any system, any any theory of justice works is, um, when we identify um, an act of aggression, then you, at that point you can take the consequences into account in assessing damages. Right, this is called consequential damages in the in the law. This is why people say that um, they try to justify intellectual property by saying, "Well, Stefan, if you have." a stack of paper in your house and someone breaks into your house and steals the paper and it's blank paper but if someone breaks into your house and steals a stack of paper that has your unpublished novel written on it right then th- the damages would be different which implies intellectual property because they're stealing something like they must have stolen something you owned right but it's mm-hmm. like no it's not that way at all it's just that the fact of the tr- act of trespass you, you the damages owed is, … Is, is the consequences of the action. So, for example, in the law, there's always been what's called the eggshell skull doctrine, which is if you walk up to some innocent victim on the street and you, you slap them on the head, okay, a normal person would get annoyed, and they might sue you, and they might get $1,000 damages for this assault and battery on your skull. But it wouldn't be the death penalty because they just slapped you on the head. But if you slap someone on the head who has a rare condition of an eggshell skull, we call it someone who has got a like like a soft head, and you actually kill them, then you're 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 guilty of murder. In both cases, the mm. physicalist or behaviorist description of the action is the same. You just kind of slap them on the head, but in one case you killed them, in one case you didn't. So it's not the victim's fault for having a thin skull. So it's the aggressor's fault. For doing what they did, and if what they did happens to cause worse consequences in a given case, then they're liable for more damages. So, in one case, they might be liable for a thousand dollars, In another case for three million dollars. Okay, the same thing. If I steal your blank she- blank stack of paper, I might owe you a thousand dollars damages for trespassing, invading your home. But if I take your novel and publish it, and I I, re- I reduce your opportunity to make a million dollars by first releasing your book then I'm guilty, I might, I might owe you a million dollars because the consequences of my act of aggression are different. So just because the, there's a difference in the paper that I stole doesn't mean that there's intellectual property.
0: Now I'd like to tell you about a great new Bitcoin show on the scene that you've got to check out. Brought to you by Swan Studios and Bitcoin Magazine, this show is Hard Money with Natalie Brunel. Natalie is an Emmy-nominated journalist bringing unparalleled experience to the Bitcoin media scene. And personally, Natalie is one of my favorite voices in the Bitcoin space. Each week on Hard Money, you'll get the top headlines of the week with analysis you won't find anywhere else, hard-hitting interviews with amazing guests like myself and other top minds in the Bitcoin space, and the show will take you directly into the lives being changed by Bitcoin all over the world. Check out hard money at swan.com backslash hard money. Today, I want to tell you about our sponsor crowd health. So how does health insurance work? You send an egregious amount of money to an insurance company. They hold it in a pool of depreciating fiat currency. Then when you have a large health event, you have to pay them even more via your deductible, and then you hope they will cover your bill. And in fact, one in six bills are denied by healthcare.gov plans. It's time to take control of your own healthcare bills. I'd like to introduce you to CrowdHealth. It's a decentralization of healthcare using Bitcoin as an alternative to health insurance. Instead of sending fiat currency to a big corporation, you send that money to an account controlled by you, a portion of which is converted into Bitcoin. Then, if you have a big health event, you have a community of Bitcoiners that will use the money in their accounts to help you out. To get more details, go to joincrowdhealth.com backslash breedlove, where you can find the promo code for $99 a month for six months. It's funny. Inflation is not theft. I often say inflation is theft for that very reason you gave. That but the, but so but,
1: the inflation example. So the, the, the theft is or the the aggression is. So theft is just a type of aggression. The aggression with inflation is the government monopolizing the Central the monetary bank. system right. that lets them create an effect that's similar to um um similar to actual theft. I mean, like it's just from the government's point of view, they're a criminal. They don't care where they commit their aggression. If there's physical hard money like gold and silver, then when the king forces you to turn some of it in, that's actually theft. Mm-hmm. Or if they clip the coins, that's theft, right? Mm-hmm. If they switch to a digital fiat system like we have now, then they can just print it and do the same thing economically to you. But the the aggression is not in the printing. The aggression is in the laws that prevent you from escaping that system. The monopolization.
0: So,
1: the the monopolization. Yeah. yeah. So, but but. But just as in the IP case, there can be greater damages from stealing a valuable piece of matter as opposed to a a blank sheet of paper. Um, When the government commits that type of aggression, it's it's just like if the government monopolized the money system and they have a sound money system, there's almost no damages like if they didn't inflate at all. But if they inflate, now they're causing damages to the people.  … … which you could – and I, so there's no problem with calling it theft because as long as you keep in mind that the theft is back in the chain of causation a little bit earlier right. um, or it's really a different type of aggression. But it's still the same effect as theft, and so you could measure it the same way.
0: Yeah, no, that's a great point, point. and then when I do define it because obviously inflation's a nebulous term too. So I always define inflation as the arbitrary expansion of a fiat currency supply under Correct. the protection of a legal monopoly… Right, so that
1: whole—it's well, not just—I ar- mean, it's not just arbitrary. I mean, if you want to be technical, inflation is inflation of the money supply. It's not arbitrary. It's just any expansion of the money supply is inflationary. Mm. Which means that even in a private society where there's gold and gold is mined, mm. my personal view is when gold is mined, that's inflationary.
0: Okay, but the difference is there's cost to mining the gold. There's not cost to well, that's
1: one difference. The other mining. difference is there's no coercion. Like there's mm. no one's forcing people. To accept this gold standard, they're doing it because it's the best thing available. Right until Bitcoin came along. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. So I, I think I, my personal view is, uh, 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 you know, when people say Bitcoin, um, unlike gold, Bitcoin doesn't have any intrinsic value, and there's nothing backing up your money. It's like, well, first of all, there's nothing backing up any money because even if gold is money, it's got a monetary premium, probably ten times the 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 non-monetary value of the gold. So if if whatever you're using as money stops being used as money, you're going to lose nine, you know, 90% of your savings anyway. Right. Uh, so there, it's, it's literally impossible to have a money that is backed by anything because whatever's money is always going to have a monetary premium, and that monetary premium could evaporate if it stops being used as money. Um, but anything that does have a, a non-monetary use is imperfect as money because – I mean it still might be better than having no money. Like having gold, even though it's imperfect, is better than having a barter society. Obviously, but it be the ideal money would be one that has no non-monetary use. Because when you have gold, then you're wasting resources getting gold just for monetary use. You're diverting the the ornamental and the um, industrial uses of gold into money, um, right? And uh, also, it causes I think when there's a, when the new new gold is mined, it leads to a re- redistribution of wealth, and it leads to inflation, price inflation, yeah. relative price inflation. Um, now, that's a small cost, small price is worth paying to have to avoid a barter system. But if we can have one that doesn't have that, which is what Bitcoin is, then that's why it's even better in in my in my view.
0: Yeah, agreed. I've often called Bitcoin the first pure money. Right, everything Correct. else has been impure to the extent that it's used for industrial or ornamental purposes.
1: Yeah, it's, a, it's 100% monetary premium instead yes. of 90%, 90% monetary premium.
0: Exactly. So to continue here on Hoppe's Garden of Eden analogy, he writes, even in the Garden of Eden, I could not simultaneously eat an apple, smoke a cigarette, have a drink, climb up a tree, read a book, build a house, play with my cat, drive a car, etc. I would have to make choices and could do things only sequentially. And this would be so because there is only one body that I can use to do these things and enjoy the satisfaction derived from doing them. I do not have a superabundance of bodies, which would allow me to enjoy all possible satisfactions simultaneously in one single bliss. And I would be restrained by scarcity in another respect as well. As long as this scarce resource, the body, is not indestructible, and is not equipped with eternal health and energy, but rather is an organism with only a limited lifespan, time is scarce too. The time used up in pursuing goal A reduces the time left to pursue other goals. And the longer it takes to reach a desired result, the higher the cost involved in waiting will be. And the higher the expected satisfaction must be in order to justify the cost. So there's, I mean, there's just no way out of, again, I don't know if scarcity is the right term. Maybe that's a little bit muddy, but maybe uh, what's the one you said? Conflictability. There's an inherent conflictability, I guess, just by existing as a human being, right? You, We live in time yeah. pursuing goal A diverts from pursuing goal B. You've got to prioritize and that's that prioritization is action in a way, right? Whatever you're doing in a moment. You're doing at the exclusion of all other things you could be doing, right? You're incurring those opportunity costs.
1: Yeah, and I think he's also kind of explaining time preference here, uh, mm-hmm. which is almost uh, um, um, implied by the fact of action because you can only act in the present. So wh- wh- whatever you do, you're always preferring something now as opposed to the future. So it's it's implied by the fact of action. But notice that so, like when he makes this kind of a fantastical. Uh, assumption of a garden of eden he's assuming away all scarcity except for your body because if he assumes that away then we're we're not even humans anymore we're just some kind of weird mini gods living in our own you know solipsistic realm or something like it just doesn't have any relevance to us at all but the the fact that he retains scarcity of your body in his in his fantastical example is a way of highlighting one thing that some libertarians miss which is they believe that um just because your human body is a prototype of ownership of scarce resources, that that means that we own ourselves because of homesteading as well. In other words, the reason you own an unowned resource in the world is because it was unowned and you appropriated or you first used it or you, you homesteaded it, as Locke says. And they think that, well, then you, you own – if you own yourself, it's because you homesteaded yourself, but that doesn't make any sense. The concept of homesteading requires there to be an actor. Like, so there has to be an actor or an agent in the world who's roving around the world, finding unknown things, and then taking them to himself and becoming the owner of those things. But the first act of appropriation can't be owning your body because there wouldn't be an actor to do that, which is exactly why Hoppe here doesn't imagine away the scarcity of your body. Like, to keep the concept of ourselves as actors, we have to assume a human body with physical features. But if you own that, it can't be because you homesteaded it, because there's no there's no actor before that to homestead it, right. unless you go mystical and you assume that you know there's a god up in heaven with souls and he he puts a soul into a body in soulment or whatever. But you know that's not libertarianism. That's 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 uh, religion and metaphysics. Right. Um, we have to we have to have a different grounding for that. Now Locke, this is where I would differ for Locke, okay, and I think where Hoppe dip, differs from Locke. So Hoppe's view, and he spells this out, by the way, not in this book, but in in an earlier writing, which was in German, which he translated for me when I was talking to him about it. And I put it in my article, How We Come to Own Ourselves. It's implicit in what he wrote here, but he didn't spell it out. But basically, um, he does speak of homesteading of external resources, things that were unowned.  … … but he never says you own your body because you homestead it. It's, it's, it's rather because you have direct control of your body. So if you go back a level of description, the basis of, of libertarian property rights is that we identify a scarce resource, and then we identify which human agent or actor has the better claim to it. So that's the ultimate thing. Who has the better link or the better claim to a thing? Now, in the cases of external objects that were previously unowned, the better link has to be the first user. The reason is because first use has to be possible. Otherwise, we wouldn't be alive. So first use has to be possible, and unless a second guy can come along and take it from you, in which case you don't have any property rules because property means the current owner owns it until he gives it away. right? So it's like a Mises money regression theorem idea with property. If you believe that people have to be able to use unowned things in the first case…  … and in property rights, then obviously first use is a core property principle for things that were previously unowned. That is the best link in that case, but in the case of your body, the best link is not your first use of your body because you didn't exist without your body. You're part of your body. The best link is your direct control over your body, the fact that you can can directly control it. Um, Now, in a sense… When you wake up as a baby or a child and you start asserting your will over your body, you could say that's the first use of your body, but it's still not like you're, you're homesteading an unowned body because before you owned your body, it was a piece of matter that someone else owned, like your mother or your dad. right? So whenever you believe rights start happening, whether it's in the fetus stage or the baby stage or whatever, before that, it's it's owned by the mother or the family, and after that, it's owned by the person who directly controls it.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I wonder if that is perhaps another useful way to conceptualize property as as control over an asset, or Because that's what it's ultimately about: is the connection between the individual agency and the actual scarce resource.
1: There is an there is an element of control. So in in the, in the case of your body, it's your direct control. So that gives mm-hmm. you an a, that gives you an unavoidable, an undeniable link to it, which. So, in this, where Hoppe's argumentation ethics comes into play, he says that, like, when we justify rights, you have to imagine, say, two or more people engaged in a dialogue or a discourse about, okay, what rules should we have? And if the first rule that comes up is, okay, who owns our bodies? Well, each person making the argument for ownership of our bodies is already presupposing, well, he's already controlling his own body. Right. And he's definitely so claiming a right to his own body because he doesn't want, he might, he might say he owns you, but he also says he owns himself. But For whatever grounds he gives for owning his own body, he's got to grant that you have the same basis because you're similarly situated. So whatever it is about him – and so what it is about him is he has a direct control of his body. So he's basically, by claiming a right in in his own self, he's conceding that other actors also have a right to their own bodies because they are their bodies and they control their bodies. So it's all interlinked together. right? So that's the core of it. Now… As a matter of e- pure economics and Crusoe on his island, we need to control other things in the world, right? So control is po- and that's what we call, I would distinguish that, I would call that possession, right? Just uh, the fact of control uh, over a thing. But again, when there's other people around, this fact of control and this need to control gives rise to the possibility of conflict because of the nature of these things. They could be they could be thought over by more than one person at a time. So then we seek norms that say, okay, There's a thing that could be used by many people. Well, it can't be used by many people at once, but many people could seek to use it, but that's going to be wasteful and violent. So we're going to assign it to one person. So obviously, it's got to be the person that has the best link to it, and that's the first person who controlled it, you could say, which is what appropriation or homesteading is, the first person who controlled it. And then that person has the right by consent, by contractual consent… To consensually transfer it to another person, that that that's how someone can come to own something. So you basically can come to own things only two ways: um, you, you're the first person to start using an unowned thing, or you get the own thing from 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 the existing owner. That's that's very simple, right? Through
0: consensual exchange,
1: through contract. That's what contract right. is.
0: Contract, yes. And so, does this then highlight? The relationship of defensibility and property, because if you I think if you get really Darwinian about it,
1: it's ultimately it's only yours to the extent that you can defend it. I, right. now, I think that's yeah, I think statements like that' there is, that's that's a mixture of practicality and economics on the one hand and and norms on the other. So if you're not careful, so it's it's true, I think basically. But if you're not careful with that, then you start thinking it might makes right, right? And you start thinking, well, there's lots of property that's owned now that has a tarnish on its title from 700 years ago. So basically, it's all might makes right or something like that. That's yeah. a confusion which we can clear up with property theory. But um, I think I think what what the what the core of the insight is is that um, well, first of all, rights are not self-enforcing. So just because you have a normatively justifiable property right in something doesn't mean that it's impossible, literally impossible for someone. To, to violate that right, I know rights can be violated. They're normative; they're not laws of, they're not physical causal laws. Like you can't violate the law of gravity, <laughs> you can't violate the law, second law of thermodynamics, or whatever, right? But it's, even if you disagree with it, <laughs> it's going to operate no matter what. But God's not out there making everyone live up by the golden rule. Right? people can violate rights, um, and this is one thing that that kind of simple-minded legal positivist. And skeptics point to as they say, haha, what good do your rights do? I can just shoot you. It's like, yeah, okay, you can violate my rights, but I never claim my rights are self enforcing anyway. So, saying that rights are property is only so good as you can protect it is true in a practical sense because they're not self enforcing. So, sometimes you have to engage in reasonable measures like, you know, put a lock on your door or or, 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 or you know, ha, ha, hire hire a protection company, or, or live in a society where everyone respects this, and there's a police force, or you know, a private police force, or whatever, um, or, or have you know, ha, have some guns on yourself, you know, protect protect yourself. So, uh, that's that's one, that's one um, uh, aspect of what that kind of expression means. Uh, the other one is recognizing the fact that it's possible to lose your rights over time. Um, … and also the fact that you don't have to trace title back to a pristine source to have a legitimate property right. What that means is you don't have to trace your title back to Adam, the hypothetical Adam. Um, so some people say, well, Kinsella, obviously you don't believe in your property rights principles because uh, there's uh, – where I said that the only two things you need is first ownership and contractual title transfer. The, the problem is they take that… To go, they say that implies that if you go backwards, you can only have good property if you can trace it all the way back to that original act of homesteading and there was no act of crime in between. That's actually just not true. These rules establish a presumption, right? And they help us settle because any property dispute in the real world is always between two existing, present living actors who claim a given existing resource. So, as between them, the question is always, which one of you has the better claim? So, what they typically do, instead of going through the trouble of going all the way back to Adam, whatever that is, you know, the state of Louisiana being founded, or America being founded, or the Magna Carta, or where, whatever you want to do, or back to Adam, literal Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, whatever. Um, what you, as a matter of economy, what we do is we, in the law, we trace it back to what's called a common author, which means a common owner. So if a and B both want a piece of property now, but they both admit that it was owned by C, say, 300 years ago. They both admit that C owned it. It doesn't matter that whether C himself was a thief. It doesn't matter whether C got it from D and D got it from E and E was a thief. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if there's like a long-lost F out there who was dispossessed and his heirs are all gone. It doesn't matter. All that matters is that A and B have the two best claims to this property and they both agree that C owned it. So then so then you only have to trace title back from C. So then you see, well, who did C die and live it to? Who did and if if, if C left it to this heir, but then C had a contract five years later giving it to, to someone else that that B claims it from, well then the law has a set of rules that say, okay, well, no, well then your claim is bad and yours is good. This is the way it works. Um and so because they both have clean hands, we call it, but they're both innocent they're not thieves with respect to anyone else, um, and so A has a better claim against B, and A and B together have a better claim against the rest of the world because they trace you back to C, and no one else can come forward which has a better claim. So for all practical purposes, no one else can defeat their claim, so they are the owners because ownership means having the right to use a resource. Having the right means no one else has a better claim, and if there's no one else, there's just no one else. Now, what this does imply in my view – some libertarians would disagree with this. If someone can come forward today in 2022, America uh, or the world, and they can show that they have a better claim to an existing resource, like let's say, for example, I live on a plantation in Louisiana, which I inherited from my from my father. He got it from his father. And ultimately, it was, it was a slave owner that owned that plantation. And let's say there was one family of slaves that were kept enslaved by my great, great, great grandfather, and they're still alive, and they could. … have a clear chain of title back to what their ancestors were owed in restitution for the crime of slavery, being enslaved. I would say in those cases, if they can make out the claim, they should be able to take the plantation away from me, right? But in that case, we're still – there's still is the same. We're not tracing it back to Adam. We're tracing it back to my great-great-grandfather, but right. we're saying my great-grandfather lost title of it because he committed a, a tort against these these… Innocent black people, right? So he owes them these slaves, right? Um, now, p- some people think that that kind of rule would, I mean, maybe we have to give Manhattan back to the Indians or maybe, um, right. uh, you know, uh, whatever. Well, if we had a just society where we were actually honoring these kinds of claims on occasion, which would be really rare, by the way, because the older a claim gets, the harder it is to prove it because the evidence is lost, witnesses are all dead. So the problem is a vanishingly small problem, which is the reason why things like the statute of limitations arose just practically recognizing the fact that after a certain amount of time, it's just unfair to um, subject someone to a lawsuit that someone should have brought earlier because if you wait too long, it makes it unfair for the guy being sued because he can't defend himself anymore because all the witnesses are dead. Now, in the case of slavery… It's not their fault that they didn't bring the suit. They weren't allowed to. So sometimes mm-hmm. we toll the statute limitations, or we toll what's called latches. So things like this come into play, and they're all reasonable. But in my view, if this was a common occurrence at all, then you would have just title insurance that would cover it. You know, like if I buy a, a Rolex from a Rolex store in the in, in the shopping mall. There's zero chance that it's stolen because it's an authorized Rolex dealer. But if I buy a Rolex for $5,000 when it's normally $20,000 used on eBay, there is a slight chance that I'm buying stolen goods. Okay, So what if the owner of the Rolex comes forward and he says, hey, you have my grandfather's Rolex, which was stolen from him. you got to turn it over to me. Okay, well, then I would be out the $5,000 and the Rolex. So if I'm really worried about that, I would just take out property title insurance. And then if I took out property title insurance… Like I'm buying the Rolex for five thousand, I pay another three hundred for property title insurance. the The insurer is going to do a title check first to make sure they're not going to pay out. So they're going to investigate, right? So these things would not be a real problem. But as as a as, a, as a as I think as as a technical matter, um, you you take these property rules and you take them to wherever they lead you. But my point is, it doesn't mean that. … that the fact of original sin, you could call it, in most people's real property titles today means that they don't own it. Because remember, when you have these socialists say things like, oh, well, you own this, this factory, but it really came from, I don't know, uh, people that were stolen from 700 years ago or something like that. What what are they saying? They're saying you don't have a property in in this factory, but we do. <laughs> so they're claiming it for themselves. But what gives them a better claim to it than you who've been using it for generations productively and peacefully, and you never committed an act of crime yourself? So as between those two people, who has a better claim? You can't just get a better claim over someone's property by criticizing something wrong with their title chain from generations in the past. That doesn't give you a better claim to the property than they have, and you see I'm using the word property wrongly here, the resource. (laughs) It's it's
0: hard. It's hard. It is hard. Well it's yeah so we're trying to i guess superimpose this normative structure but if the further you go back in history obviously the muddier things become especially I mean human history is just a disaster in a lot of ways right there's been crime the 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 history of humanity is like kind of the history of crime they're kind of one and the same obviously not everything we do is criminal but man it's it's pretty bleak um and you mentioned here that these norms that we're superimposing on our relationships with ourselves and one another they're not self enforcing is that the genesis of the state then is to be the enforcer of these norms is that
1: that's a, that's, a, that's a good insight it's a good question I think in a sense it is because because they're not self enforcing and because what we call self-help, be like being your own little kingdom. I mean, that's possible to an extent for some people. You know, you can have a, a big family on a farm, and everyone's got their guns, and so people know to stay away. But um, you know, for for a large invading force, you can't fight them all. So people tend to band together and have collective defense. So the yeah, the king, I think the small k king in a little community, a little tribe, a little region would tend to be. The a guy people would turn to, that was wise, preserve the traditions and the customs, and would resolve disputes. You know, do civil things like conduct marriages and but resolve disputes, but also you know lead the tribe and they would have collective defense. And so yeah, you're gonna give a little tribute to the guy, which is like a proto form of taxes. And so of course, over time that gets corrupted. So I do think that uh, that may be part of the genesis of of um. Of of proto states and then which emerges into states, which really got to be problematic with democracy, right? In in, in the early part of the the 20th century. Um, You know, even in a large monarchy, it's going to have corruption and inefficiencies and actual taxation, not just tribute voluntarily paid. Uh, But there's, as Hoppe writes in his democracy book, there's lots of natural limits on what the monarch can get away with and lots of good things they do compared to the way democracies Mm -hmm. now operate. So once you have democracy, then the, the state has metastasized into the modern state, and um, and it's just uh, – all bets are off then. Uh, and there's like almost no connection anymore between what the state does and what natural justice is, where at least there's some remnant connection when there's a – or there can be when there's a monarch. Like it's possible to have a good monarch, right, but it's monarch, not possible to have a good democratic state.
0: Right, and again, this is sort of back to property I think… Uh, again, drawing on Hoppe's book "Democracy: The God That Failed," that the monarch has more skin in the game or has more of a capital interest in the tax yeah. base versus a a democratically elected, you know, four or eight year guy.
1: Right, because because in the monarchical and feudalistic systems, um, there's like a hierarchy of ownership. So the 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 king. The state is the overlord. They they're the base owner of the entire country in a sense, and then that property is distributed to their lords and their fiefdoms and you know and and the tenants down the road. Um, it's very decentralized, distributed, uh, mutually reinforcing. Uh, but and the king the king is there for life, and then he can give it to his his heirs. So uh, so he has uh, uh, an interest in preserving the value of so-called his kingdom, or at least the base ownership of his his kingdom. Um, so you know, he tends to think of long-term consequences when he enacts policies, whereas, you know in the democratic state, the leaders, the rulers are in for four years or something like that. So they're trying to get as much as they can. they They don't care about the cost they impose to get it.
0: yeah, it's a great point. So I mean, would it then be another way I describe the importance of private property is that it it's foundational to civilization or perhaps more narrowly just social organization um and as we'll get into later in this book you know socialism is sort of premised on obviating or or even eliminating private property so would you agree with that that it's as we're describing it's the monarch's property interest in the tax base it sort of makes that work the state it seems like the genesis of the state is related to the enforcement of the norms of property so is I'm I'm drawing on Ayn Rand here, where she says, and I think Mises says this too, right? Private property is foundational to civilization. You can't really have one without the other.
1: I certainly, I, I mean, I think so- society itself um, presupposes a certain amount of voluntary respect for each other's rights, and that's because we're a social species, which means most normal people, um, the way I, I crudely put it, and even Mises talks about this, is we have empathy for others, which which, which simply means that. Part of our value system is the well-being of other people. I mean we're all mm-hmm. self-interested, but because we're social a social species, it matters to most of us that are not sociopaths um, that other people – the other people's well-being matters to us too. And there's Maybe some not self-interest much,
0: baked into that right? because other I, people I agree. That's what are self-interest happy and productive.
1: Because but we're a social species right. and because we we enjoy having our families and are living in a community with others, and we enjoy the division of labor… … and social intercourse with other people, it's all part of selfish – it's all mixed together, but it's just part of who we are. So most normal people that are not sociopaths um, have some empathy for others, and that means that we have a certain amount of voluntary respect for other people's rights according to these natural natural property norms. Uh, and if we didn't have that, we just wouldn't exist as a, as a civilized species. We would just be like animals basically you know, with living hand to mouth all the time. But we're not. So apparently, apparently we have a different nature than that. Um, And if we're if we're lucky, we have enough of us to fight off the deviants among us. You know, the the five percent, one percent, ten percent, whatever it is, the people who will cheat. Um, Look, even if everyone was born an angel. If you had a perfectly docile pacifist society where everyone respected everyone's rights, the temptation for that one worst guy, the, the one right. least good guy on the edge to cheat would be so immense because he could just walk into everyone's houses and steal their gold, you know, because they wouldn't even All have right. locks on their doors. No one would know what locks were. So there, I think just economically, there's always going to tend to be some deviants, some outliers, some outlaws. And so uh, the the 90% remainder people always have to recognize this possibility and they always need to be on the ready to stop it or to be so wealthy that they don't care which is what i suspect the future will be if we don't kill ourselves i think we'll have some kind of some kind of near super abundant society not super abundant but a, a post scarcity society not even post scarcity but like hyper we'll abundance let's call super it super <laughs> rich yeah yeah super rich so that you know i mean no one has a need to steal and even if someone is so poor even in a world where it's easy to become rich People would just give them some stuff for free. Who cares? You know. Yeah. Have some bananas. <laughs> yeah. So that's my that's my kind of utopian dream for the future. Uh, that that crime will diminish because it won't matter. People won't need to commit crime, and no one will care. They all have so much stuff. They, they, I don't know. That's my hope for the future.
0: Yeah. Well, it all comes down to the incentives, like you just said. If everyone's in this super docile society, the incentives to be the one wolf in that. pack of humans is really huge because you can just reap a lot of gains but um i guess the other piece of that is like again something like bitcoin right it makes at least that form of property money itself really hard to steal really unprofitable to to correct
1: and not only that i I think there's been some really good essays i think keto holzman has written on this and there's a guy named um uh, Paul Cantor, I think he recently died actually. He was, a, he was a Mises scholar. He's got a great article on Paul Mann and hyperinflation about how our current fiat inflationary order has totally corrupted um, um, society. Everyone's view about the future, their view about savings, their view about um, time preference, their their time preference, and if we were to have a sound money, I think it would have dramatic consequences. Uh, implications and consequences for just our character as a species. It would reduce time preference. It would make us have a completely different perspective on spending and consumption, leisure. You know, I mean, I think, you know, I I could imagine a future where, you know, you get out of you get out of high school or college and get some productive job and you just rent for eight years, and then you saved up enough to just buy a house for cash. Like I could imagine lending, the whole concept of lending just disappearing. Yeah. Um, and people just saving ahead of time and using their savings for investments or for purchases. Um, I could see the whole concept of loans just disappearing in a sound money world.
0: Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And exactly what you just said, Hoppe gets into later. But I, I want to be respectful of your time today. Um, so we'll wrap it up here and, and jump back in soon so All right. on.
1: we can do a part three sure
0: thank you so much
1: appreciate it robert